I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we reveal the embedded codes and challenge the operating systems driving our society. All it takes to join Team Human is the ability to stand up and say that you're present, alive, autonomous, and willing to find the others. This is not as hard as we're making it out to be. It's as simple as saying something like, I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, percussionist for everyone from Frank Zappa to Herbie Hancock, Hall of Fame drummer Vinnie Caliuta. If you just pick up a guitar or an instrument that's been around for a million years, you know, or drums, you just hit it and it makes a sound. And you're sitting in a room and one person has one of those and you have the other one and this one has, and then you just interact and create synergy that way. That's a whole other thing that is vital that we really can't lose despite what technology offers us to be able to do. Vinny will be sharing the art of listening, collaborating, and celebrating the imperfection that makes music a true human art. It's time to intervene on behalf of real people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I want to begin by thanking some of our old and new patrons, Brad Smith, Andrew Milmo, Candide Kemmler, Chelsea McChesney, and Christopher Hogg. You can join the humans supporting this completely ad-free show by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support or going to patreon.com slash teamhuman. All the money goes to paying for our production costs and keeping our editor and engineer clean and fed. I take none of it myself thanks to having my first paying job as a teacher at Queens College Laboratory for Digital Humanism, where we record most of these episodes. Please support us if you can. You can read written versions of most of my monologues at Medium, where we'll begin serializing the entirety of the Team Human book starting next week for 100 weeks until we're done.
I've been doing a lot of prepared monologues lately when these used to be completely off-the-cuff reactions to whatever was happening the week before. And seeing as how my medium columns are backed up in the editorial and technical pipeline right now, I figure it's high time to get back to my freestyle ways. It's more fun this way. I guess if it's more fun this way for you, let me know. So first up, Facebook. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg's been testifying to Congress this week, saying it's basically impossible for him to go through every post, even every political post, and determine whether it's true or not. They can't really do that. And it's more important to give a free voice to all these politicians who may want to say things and, of course, pay them while they're doing it. So he's just going to kind of let people do that. And that's really relatively insane. I mean, if Facebook's going to get money for posting things, then they're a publishing company. (laughs) They're an advertising company. Anything that they get paid for to post is something that they should use part of that money they're getting paid to look at the thing and see whether or not it's postable, whether or not you can say it. Right? If you're being paid to broadcast something, then you you do owe something to all of your listeners. It's kind of a, a, a it's an insane argument. And uh, at a certain point, if you don't want to take responsibility for it, if really everything you're doing, everything that's posting is just people talking and you want them all to have free speech, then don't charge them to post it right? <laughs> then, then don't. Or don't have political advertisements on your platform. It's kind of pretty easy. And this testimony that he's giving, this kind of crazy, illogical uh, testimony, it's right after someone at Facebook, I guess one of the interns or someone, released some audio of him saying that an Elizabeth Warren presidency would suck for us. That was his line. He said that that she likes breaking up companies and that she would constitute an existential threat to Facebook. Now, that kind of language is actually a little scary to me, right? So out of one side of his mouth, he's saying, we're not a publishing company. We can't be responsible for whether the ads on our platform are factual. But this one candidate is an existential threat. Right, And again, I'm quoting him. He said, at the end of the day, if someone's going to try to threaten something that existential, you go to the mat and you fight. If she gets elected president, then I would, I would bet that we will have a legal challenge and I would bet that we will win the legal challenge. Does that still suck for us? Yeah. I mean, I don't have to you know, have a major lawsuit against our own government. I mean, that's not like the position that you want to be in. But look, at the end of the day, if someone's going to try to threaten something that existential, you go to the mat and you fight. So He's really scared. Most of all, he's being scared of being broken up, right? That's been the big thing. Since the last congressional hearings, when people were hinting at, well, are you a monopoly? Should we break you up? Right after that, in the weeks following, he started talking about bringing all the Facebook messaging apps like WhatsApp and Instagram and everything all into the same mega app, as if he's like circling the wagons to make it harder to break up these companies, which are essentially separate entities. We're going to artificially just sort of put them all into one thing so it'll be better for consumers. No, it's because it'll be hard to break them up. And then he came up with the Libra, this coin, Facebook's Bitcoin. And what's the Libra? The Libra is a bargaining chip. The Libra is there for him to say to the U.S. government, look, 
uh, we're either going to base the Libra on the U.S. dollar or on something else, depending on how you act to us, right? This is leverage. This is not uh, uh, the coin for the masses. I don't even know if they're going to release Libra. They don't even have to. It's the threat of the Libra that can keep the U.S. government in line. And now, now he sees Warren as this existential enemy. At the same time that he's arguing that he can use somehow human and AI editors to filter out all the really noxious stuff from his platform. No, they're not going to decide what's true or what's not. They're going to decide what's dangerous, what's potentially violent or not, what's an existential enemy or not. And I don't even think breaking them up is the existential problem for them. You break them up, it's like the sorcerer's apprentice. When they, when he, Mickey Mouse, he chopped up the broom into all the little pieces and then all the little pieces turned into the, the living brooms again. So it's like, instead of death by one great white shark of Facebook, it's death by a thousand tiny piranhas of broken up evil social media companies. No, the real threat that Warren or, or any uh, a left-leaning politician would, would present is not breaking them up as a monopoly, but regulating them in an ongoing way. That's a lot harder, of course, but it's the only way you can really control something is regulate it. You know, ongoing parenting from someone like Elizabeth Warren, that is Mark Zuckerberg's worst nightmare, right? Someone who may treat Facebook like the public utility that they actually are. The other person who's been stuck in my head this week, really all month, is Rudolph Giuliani. I feel like on a certain level, he's the one person on TV who's most honestly articulating the authoritarian side of things. You know, I don't even want to keep talking about Trump. I'm not going to talk about him. I don't even think he's so important to all this. I think pointing at him as everybody does, Trump, 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 is kind of like blaming the cult leader for one's indoctrination, right? That just gives him more power. It's not about him. He just jumped into the standing wave of culture. This is about us. He's a reflection of us. We're not some reflection of him. But if someone is out there honestly pushing for authoritarianism, the idea that some dictator at the top should be given all the authority, and that he, yes, he, that he needs to run this kingdom, it's Giuliani. And that's why he keeps going on TV saying the same things he's been saying since he was mayor of New York, that the CEO just needs to run things, you know, and that if that means breaking the law here and there, so be it. Breaking the law is just an act of civil disobedience. Right? As they see it, these, these laws are just special interests and deep state actors who can find and pin something on almost anyone just to stop them from doing what's necessary. Giuliani feels like he's fighting against those rules, and he's even telling the truth about how he and the administration are breaking them. Yes, we held up Ukraine's money. So what? Giuliani's position, it's always been to support the despot at the top, from Berlusconi and Erdogan to Netanyahu and the U.S. president. He sees the world as a battle of organized crime families. 
And the ones at the top, they need to be able to do what is necessary, unhindered by the formalities of checks and balances. That stuff may be nice for civics class, but not the real world. So when you see Rudy or Pompey or that chief of staff guy, um, Mulvaney, on TV, just admitting everything, remember that to them... That's like being Extinction Rebellion, civil disobedience against what they see as a kind of corruption. It's not the corruption of stealing money and making secret deals, the kind they might be accused of, but this other kind. It's a more essential corruption of strength and the unfettered ability to do whatever they want in the moment. That's the corruption that they would see the left as guilty of, right? Preventing government from doing the tough stuff government has to do, like hang up the phone with Erdogan and then just let his security thugs beat up American protesters on American soil. Forgot about that one. I haven't. Or wipe out the Kurds in an ethnic cleansing sweep or scare Central Americans from immigrating to the U.S. by putting their kids in concentration camps. Laws apply to the citizens, but not to the leader right? You can't handle the truth. Look away. We got this. Thank us for our service and shut the F up. That was fun. You're on Team Human. Our guest today, the drummer most other drummers say is the best one in the world, although he'd hate me saying that, Vinny Kaliuta. He played on all the great Zappa records, toured with Sting for years, played with Beck, Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, even Joni Mitchell. But most of all, I wanted to talk with Vinny about how thought can get in the way of flow and how tech can get in the way of human expression. So here's Vinny Kaliuta. As you probably know, I mean, Team Human is really about uh, separating the signal from the noise. And I feel like we're living in a world that's really uh, where our problem is is very much exemplified in the direction of some music production, which is to shave off the human bits of music, whether it's through you know automated click tracks or auto-tuning, where they're looking at all the stuff that I've considered the signal of humans in music and considering it noise and getting us to conform to the uh, to the quantized reality of our of our digital technology uh, that's very very astute and and right on point and um with regarding that issue i mean i look at it like uh, like like part of the zeitgeist and 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 i think that that it just sort of falls in line with this whole Mick world that we're living in and um, homogeneity and brandification and all that kind of stuff. When I was a kid growing up, listening to music before I even thought about becoming a professional, some of the most iconic records of all time that still stand the test of time, they weren't done with those kinds of sensibilities. Some of us may look back at at some of these records now and, and think, well, how imperfect they were, but we're imposing a different set of standards 
on them. Right. So if you took if you took someone like Buddy Rich and then stuck a computer metronome thing next to one of his recordings, he's going to be getting faster and slower over the song? Actually, he may or may not. And I, I actually noticed on one track that I heard Buddy do recently where by the time they got to a tenor solo, the track had the, the song had settled just a little bit, but that was okay because that's all part of of breathing and feeling it. And Buddy Buddy had impeccable time. And so I've heard people say things like he was great for his time, and I steadfastly disagree with that. He's great, period, and he's amazing for all time. There's a plethora of records that we could cite that have situations where you hear the time fluctuating and human time and emotion and expressed emotion on the spot may do that. But but the, the whole bigger point that people have to understand is the entirety of the groove, the entirety of the time feel of the whole recording over the period of time from which it begins and from which it ends is a story. So if it ebbs and flows, that's just how nature works. But we're f- removed from that now. We're on grids. We're on this, that, and the other thing. Once I was doing a session, and this was several years ago, and I, I just want to say that oftentimes people will say to me, well, why, why, why don't you ever want to go into the control room and listen to playbacks? And I would say, well, there's several reasons. One reason is because I can't stand to hear myself played back. And they laugh and say, oh, come on, come on. I say the second reason is because you now have, if it sounds really good on that play, playback, you have two more chances to screw it up. One is in mixing and the other one is in mastering. So I just hope that it will sound that good when the record comes out. But really what I would do is I would have conversations during the playback and people would say, well, Why are you talking over the music? And I would say, because if there's anything that sticks out glaringly, then I would consider that some sort of, you know, a mistake, for lack of a better word. Once I was listening to a playback of a track that we recorded, and suddenly it sounded very, very, very wrong in a big way. And I, I stopped talking and I looked over and I saw a guy sitting there in front of the computer with Pro Tools, and he was making adjustments. And I walked over to him and I said, "Um, what what exactly are you doing right now? And he said, I'm adjusting your snare drum backbeats to the grid. And I, I just said to him, can you please not do that? Because I did that on purpose. Those snare drum backbeats are behind the grid on purpose. And so... If you can't hear how bad it feels now and you're you're just engineering with your eyes, we're in a sad state. And you know, and the other thing though that, that's really sad about that that I'm also touching is that, you know, not only do people listen with their their ears, but the the sad part of it is that over time as as the way of making music has changed, you know, people they they get conditioned to that. They can get conditioned to anything. 
So if they can get conditioned to anything, why not condition them to something that's good, qualitatively good and organic instead of just pumping algorithms down their throats? Right. I mean, and, and, and you know, and my work is about what is trying to answer that question and really looks at questions of the market and conformity and fascism, if you will. I mean, yeah. they, all, they all come into play, this kind of techno-fascist lockstep um, digital grid. Exactly. And it goes all the way back to really the, 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 the invention of science. Back when Francis Bacon was talking about, you know, uh, science will help us hold down nature and, 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 you know, basically, you know, rape her and, and force her to, to conform to what we want, you know, right through digital, which wants to quantize everything because everything that can be quantized can be monetized or commoditized. And there you go. But we lose, we, we don't only lose access to these sort of more liminal human uh, rhythms and in-betweenness and, and liminal spaces, but we start to um, devalue and, and abhor them. I'll hear kids, even drummers and musicians talk about Ringo Starr. And what to me, I don't care, is the genius of his kind of falling down the stairs quality of drumming slightly behind what's happening that creates such drama and such a lean in. It's an invitation into the beat of the music, and they're calling it um, an error, a, a human error. Exactly. It's 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 the zeitgeist. It's the conditioning, and uh, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I, I mean, I often wonder whether or not um, – they can sort of be enlightened again just by being taught to listen differently because it's it's almost like if you if you haven't lived long enough to have a history to be able to sort of note those differences then you, you know and people will argue this point saying no that's just a bias and it's and I don't believe that it is because I think that I myself am able to separate a bias from being able to look at that and go, wait a second, you're missing a point here. And I see what that point is because I can compare the two objectively. And many of us can do that. He also was was part, I mean, you have to look at his identity. You have to look at the fact that he was part of a system that was the Beatles, including right, George his Martin. relationship to the other boys in the room. Exactly. And you're hearing that. Exactly. Oh, you hear all of that. You're hearing their individual identities merged into a collective identity that's part of a system that works. And so you have to think in terms of that. And understand that. Uh, let's let's just go back to like a studio musician level. I remember back in the days when live recording was the order of the day and people played together all the time. The greatest producers were masters at casting. And that casting can carry into all sorts of areas where let's say you, you know, he, that, that producer knew how to assemble a great rhythm section and the casting was perfect. Everyone worked together perfectly, but sometimes you'll see these bands, maybe it's an all-star band and it's this great, you know, uh, virtuosic band. And then there's one guy who kind of is not that. And so people will dog that guy and they'll say he shouldn't be there. 
And my thing is like, well, why shouldn't he be there? Maybe he's a very, very necessary element in order to to offset everything else that's happening because it is a system. And by the same token, I've seen all-star bands where they were just a bunch of egos flailing away, and it just never really worked as a system. So it's systemic, and it's casting, and it's individual identities coming together to form a group identity that works for a, a bigger cause. I mean, the, the example that comes to my mind was, was a, a PBS uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame memorial for George Harrison. And they have the gods of, up there, like Eric Clapton and people are playing. And then they have George Harrison's son there on a microphone acoustic guitar. And you could think, oh, well, George Harrison's son is not one of them. But it lent such a humility – it forced everybody into a space of humility because they were they were both with someone who wasn't the same sort of whatever rock and roll legend that they were, but was the actual son of the rock and roll legend that they were appreciating. Absolutely. And the progeny, and that's something to be respected on it on, on its own terms, uh, be even beyond all of that other stuff. I mean, you're absolutely right. And for example, I myself, um, I reconnected recently um, in the past few years with Dweezil Zappa, who I've known since he was a child. Now, you know, I played with his father. And so, uh, you know, it was interesting because uh, I think about a year and a half ago, he rang me up and said, hey, we're, we're playing at the uh, at the Fonda tomorrow night. We're, we're doing uh, the entire album version of Keep It Greasy. Uh, do you want to come down and play? And so I, I said, oh, you're doing the album version? Great. Uh, I know that one. Here come that crazy screaming sound. So I went down there and I, I played. And so, you know, for me, you have to understand that this is the first time I've played that song live probably in over 30 years since I played it with Frank. And then on top of it, I get there and Ike Willis, who is the singer on the track, is there as well. And so now I get on stage and I'm sitting behind the drums and I'm looking and I see Ike there, and it's surreal because it was like it's going back in time, 30, 35 years. Meanwhile, we're playing this song again that we used to play together with Frank, and then I look, and it's Dweezil. And so can you imagine what kind of a surreal experience that was? And it just it, – it was a very deep thing because Dweezil is, is you know, he's, he's, he's carrying the flag, and I, I have to hand it to him. And there we were again. And it was, I mean, there's a lot of depth to that. It's another example, though, of the fact that when we're listening to music, music recorded by humans in a human way, we're listening to a system, a living system, like uh, uh, equivalent to going and seeing the coral reef, which is a living system and very different from a constructed building in downtown Manhattan, which might be complicated, but it's not genuinely complex and alive and, and, and with, with feedback and iteration. So if kids are raised listening 
to MP3 algorithms through earbuds of musicians who are not who are beyond being locked to a click track, but being forced in post-production onto a click track that they don't even know about. And you're you go through your childhood where your hearing and your auditory centers of your brain are being formed. My fear is then that we lose this sensibility altogether. I, I completely agree with you. It's kind of like with, with technology now and what it can afford us, the ability that it affords us to do is kind of like, it's a tool and it's like garbage in, garbage out or genius in, genius out. And I've seen people who have adapted to these machines. There's a, there's a interface uh, that has a bunch of buttons on it and they, they all look the same until they light up. There's nothing to delineate what each one of these buttons does like a piano where you see white keys and black keys and some are smaller than other, you know, it's just looking at a square box with a bunch of buttons that are identical until they light up, you think, well, how can I possibly relearn how to assign certain things to these things? But the modern day mind of youth does that inherently quickly. And they do that with a fresh approach. And and I'm sure I'm not sure why that is. Uh, other than they just don't see it with a bias or perhaps there's some sort of invisible M field that allows them to sort of, you know, somehow tap into a well of information that exists in some ether that they can just get instantly. There's a number of speculative reasons why that may happen, but they can somehow teach themselves to play it like a piano or a guitar. Now, you know, there's something to be said for that, but on the other hand, it's like if you're, you know, if you just pick up a guitar or an instrument that's been around for a million years, you know, or drums, you just hit it and it makes a sound and you're sitting in a room and one person has one of those and you have the other one and this one has, and then you just interact and create synergy that way. That's a whole other thing that is vital that we really can't lose despite what technology offers us to be able to do because look, there's a million reasons behind it. And, and, you know, not the least of which is an economic thing. These people that make these things are in business. If I, if I bought an acoustic guitar, maybe the string might break and I have to replace it. Uh, okay. So I buy another string. I know some bass players who haven't changed strings for years. You know, some drummers keep the same heads on their drums and if, and if the head breaks, they cry, you know, and so you buy it once or like a camera body. If you bought like a Nikon F camera body, that thing would last you forever. All you had to do was buy film. Now, right. There's no upgrade cycle. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So now you've got the box, but then you've got the upgrade cycle and you've got the add-ons and you've got the upsells and you've got this and you've got the obsolescence and there's a new model and then they move some of the buttons. And so your muscle memory is gone. And then, right. but then you need a computer to do it. And then you're buying this and you're buying that and you're, it's just, it's really maddening. Right. And it's really hard to achieve mastery, even to get the 10,000 hours on, on, on an instrument because you don't have the instrument for 10,000 hours until you've got to change it out. Exactly. It's, it's, there's no permanence there. And it's amazing what someone has done from the inception of beating two rocks together or beating on a log to a drum set that has stood the test of time. And it's still 
people are still reinventing things on that instrument or a guitar or a piano. I mean, the piano didn't need to be changed. The compositions changed. The improvisations changed. What people said on those instruments changed. Sure, there were people that, you know, maybe experimented with micro tuning and and various other kinds of techniques in order to expand the sort of sonic possibilities of the instruments, but you get my drift. Yeah, but you could look, in some ways, you could look at the piano as the beginning of like digital music, that all of a sudden now, this was a C, and it's not really a C. I mean, well, you know, you pick, it's, it's, you know, uh, you had to sort of get equal temperament for all of your notes. For people who don't know, you know, different scales, you know, a, a G sharp is actually a different note than an A flat, but mm-hmm. on a piano, it's the same button. It's the uh-huh. same key. So they kind of compromise. So the whole piano is this, is a compromise of, uh, uh, of real kind of, of, of real harmonic resonance, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It is. But when you're talking about it also being the beginning of digital, I mean, you're, are you referring to something like the player pianos, for example? Well, I mean, just even the pianos that we that we decided that we quantize the notes that you can't like on a violin or or even a guitar, you you can't sort of pick which which side of the note you're going to be on, you know? It's, right, right, it's, exactly. It's locked exactly. down. No, it's just it is what it not is. Not that that's a crime. No, a, a lot of people think I'm anti-tech, and I'm not at all. I mean, I was the kid in in high school who had two cassette recorders in order to be able to make, you know, in order to do overdubbing to create, you know, sixteen tracks, you know, with a really hissy one in in the end. But yeah. It was fun, but it was, so that was tech, you know, and me and one other person then can pretend we're a 16 piece orchestra playing that way. But it was, it's the beginning of that sort of dissociation from real people together. And then you might task am four track or a digital delay or, uh, uh and even a, a 16 track professional, uh, uh, music recording where everyone comes in on a different day and plays to each other's tape instead of with one another, I mean, there's a loss of some sort of, of of human coherence in that process, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, there definitely is. But even when it was just tape, um, even as the tracks increased and they started syncing machines together, the basic MO was still people in a room and, you know, the process of doing sessions remained the same and, you know, it, it yielded great results. And that's why you, you hired great players and had great arrangers and had producers with great sensibilities who could make decisions because you could only punch in and out so many times on tape. And, you know, you didn't have 30 pool tech EQs that you could put on each track. You know, you maybe had one or two in the studio and you really had to think about if you were going to print with that effect because you had to make a commitment you knew what it was going to do and you know the ultimate example of all that and bouncing and multi-tracking is the Beatles and they you know I've said this before and they made some amazing results but they understood that what what they were going to do beforehand and they committed to it it's like I don't know was it Michelangelo or something or he says oh I see an angel in the rocks I mean the guy had a chisel and a hammer he didn't have command z you know you know, Mozart, I mean, Beethoven was deaf. You know, he had he had a quill pen, a candlelight and some paper. You know, he, he none of these people had an endless undo. They, they saw before they struck the first 
strike. I'm still so intrigued by this sort of collective spirit of making music in a studio. I mean, I've only, I, I played with a band called Psychic TV for a while. I don't know if you heard of them, Genesis PR, Origin industrial band. And when we were on stage, there was something that happened, or even in the rehearsal room, there was something so joyful about being with other people. And sometimes, well, all the Zappa records have it. You hear it. Or when you hear the, um, I love the word casting that you used. When you hear the brass section that they cast in David Bowie's album that he recorded in Philadelphia. Or the, the, or the brass that Stevie Wonder used on Songs in the Key of Life. You can hear their fun. You can hear the joy of them hearing their instruments together. You absolutely can. And not only that, but if you were to dissect the multi-tracks of some of these iconic sessions, you know, someone listening with today's sensibilities might go, oh my God, this is all over the place. You've got like five clavinet tracks and it sounds like a mess, but how come when you put it together, it's none more funky? So you see what I mean? Some some of those things that are greater than the sum of their parts, they can't be recreated that way. Once uh, I remember doing a session and, uh, well, I guess it's okay to name names here. And I remember uh, doing a session with Joni Mitchell late at night and we just sat down um, myself and, and, and Larry, uh, was playing bass, Larry Klein and, and me, and we, we had cut this track real um, impromptu and it, it was an amazing, amazing track that just kind of happened. And Larry told me that he, he, he decided to go in later, uh, and try to replace his bass part because he wasn't satisfied with the sound or something. And he said, I just had to leave it alone because I just could not, I couldn't match it. It would have ruined everything. So, you know, but see here, I mean, look, I'm trying to be balanced about all of this tech and everything, because then you have to go go back and say, well, what exactly is technology? And you'll have people arguing on both sides saying, well, look, you know, this is a technological thing. And if you want to look at the most rudimentary thing and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, OK, fair enough. But it is. But it's a balance. What we're talking about exactly. is where does one strike the balance? How right. do you. How do you retain and retrieve what is human and bring that forward into the next technology? Because sometimes we push the technology a little bit too far and we lose the plot. We, exactly. we, we lose access to that thing from before. Exactly, exactly, and exactly. That's the whole point of it. I mean, there has to be a balance. And I think that it's it's evolving much quicker than we can adapt. Therefore, it comes as no surprise that well, the singularity. Okay, let's all push for the singularity because uh, how are we going to possibly keep up with self-aware machines that can now, uh, you know, evolve quicker than we can possibly imagine unless we we ourselves become cyborgs? And man, oh man, this is a dangerous thing. I mean, to put it bluntly, I, you know, I I'm not down with human 2.0. I don't. I'm not down with it. I don't. We haven't fixed human 1.0. We haven't even come close to it. We don't even know what human 1.0 is yet. Exactly. To 2.0 ourselves. We don't even know what, you know, and we are, we are, by all indications, we're losing touch 
with the real signal of of our human essence and and mistaking it for noise. Absolutely. I mean, we we just I don't think we're designed you know by design to to evolve that quickly without becoming something else and destroying ourselves in the process. I just I just don't think we are. Right. I mean, and music music is is such a great way for us to celebrate what's human. So, and I was thinking about, you know, a lot of people write about how you can recognize who's drumming in a track. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, well, a lot of us can do that if you know the band. So when you hear the same, say, The Who, and you hear Keith Moon playing the same track then that Kenny Jones plays, it's two whole different songs. And I can't tell you why I know it, but I can hear it. Or Topper Heaton and Terry Chimes and The Clash. It's two different clashes. You can tell because that's part of your sensibility and part of your upbringing and what you uh, have been trained to hear. Right. Even though, and this is the best part, even though I couldn't tell you what's different, you know, right, that's right. the point that we don't, that we don't have to even know. It's just different. It's a different system now. It's a different system and something else happens. And I'm sure you can analyze it all and figure out, oh, this was after that or something, but it's different. It ends up hitting you on the more intuition gut level. The flow of the experience is different. And I guess what I'm interested in is, you know, you talk about flow and and one of the obstacles to your flow being thoughts themselves. And I'm interested in, in that because it almost sounds like meditation. Like when you're in meditative state, then you have another thought and you kind of dismiss it to move back to the flow. I mean, is that is that tangible for you while you're playing? You're in the groove of a song and then there's a thought and you have to kind of expunge it in order to keep going? Oh, absolutely. It's tangible. It's very real and experiential. It's, it's like, um, you know, some of the examples I would use, I mean, if you're sitting, you know, at a computer doing a math problem, it's that you're, you're not, I mean, unless you're on a timer, but even if you're on a timer, it's, it's a whole different kind of process than let's say you're a fighter pilot and now you are flying at a dangerously low altitude in warfare, very, very fast, navigating through artillery and trees. And can you imagine what would happen if your thoughts interfered with the automatic processes that you've acquired through all of your training that become reactive, that force you to make decisions instantly beyond the speed of thought. The same thing happens if you're, I don't know, playing tennis or, you know, uh, if, if you're performing and you're a jazz musician and you're performing and you have all these kinds of um, this, all this interplay is happening at any given moment, you have to react to it or, or at least be able to hear and without cognitively thinking about whether or not you're going to respond to it, it's kind of hard to articulate, but you you kind of are aware of what's happening, but the event keeps moving. It doesn't stop. You're in, in this kind of forward moving thing where you can't stop to think too long to make a decision as to what you're going to do, because first of all, it'll interrupt any kind of creative input that would happen at that moment. And secondly, it's, it's interruptive to the whole flow. You just, they just, they're incompatible with one another, that kind of environment and that kind of phenomena, they're just, it's just incompatible. It destroys flow. If you stop and think, Oh, I'm going to just as a drummer. Okay. Here comes my big moment. 
you know, and you're focused on that. And then somebody decides to do something else right before it and it draws your attention or, or maybe you're focused so much on it that when your time comes, you trip all over yourself. It, you know, any number of things can happen, but if it's not a static situation and it is a highly improvisatory situation, it's, it's sudden death. If you do that, you, you just, the the whole thing of overthinking and just flowing are completely incompatible. You, you just it just can't happen. The trick is then where where innovation comes from. It's like does the idea come before you're even playing? You think okay, I'm going to try this one. I'm and then you're in the flow, and then or do you come up with the idea kind of in the spot? I think that oftentimes it just happens, and in in a highly improvisatory context, you'll, you'll just go for something spontaneously and it may or may not happen. And to me, I wouldn't call that a mistake because a mistake is if you are trying to play something prepared at a given moment that you know, it's supposed to happen and you've rehearsed it like crazy and, and, and it, you just don't execute it properly versus a spontaneous idea that is just wants to come out and you know birth can be messy you know what i mean right when i feel like what musicians do when they have one of those birth moments whether it's like a guitar solo or a drum drummer doing something is they repeat it right afterwards as if to prove that this is intentional do you know what i mean oh yeah they do do that absolutely and you know if there's ego involved fine but you know what it could be like okay, uh, uh, now this t- this time I I won't uh, I, I won't screw it up and and I've incorporated that into my vocabulary and I don't want anyone to know to know that I've screwed up, which is a funny thing, and, you know. Or or sometimes they might think, oh, I'll turn this into a motif, which is there's nothing wrong with that. Right, you work with what work with what happened, right? Exactly, and um, you know, it's interesting. Just just going back to what we were talking about about balance. Sometimes people, well, a lot of times people get together and they write songs together and they collaborate. And there's a lot of collaborative efforts like that, that happen all the time. But but at the same time, uh, oftentimes composition, for example, is a solitary process. So if they want to sit there and compose and use this tech to do it, so be it. But it's, it's kind of like a paradox with all this sort of very, very fast technological innovation that's happening and us struggling to keep up with it and, you know, homogeneity and cyborgian this and that and the other thing. You know, what's interesting is that there are more rehearsal studios uh, cropping up all over the place than you can possibly imagine. So there's obviously a demand for that. It just means people want to get together and play. They want to get together. They want to develop something. They want to feel like there's this group effort of yeah, we're in this together and, you know, we're, we're social creatures. And so it's almost like, it's a beautiful thing to see, especially in an age where, you know, most of us are so externalized. Our psyches are so externalized into social media that our our whole sense of identity is enmeshed in this idea of how many likes and followers we have sometimes based on selfies, you know, versus just getting together and doing something. And nothing against, you know, nothing against garage band or reason or a kid sitting alone, a 14 year old making loops and whatever in his privacy of his bedroom. But the fact that, I mean, guitar center is one of the biggest retail growing growth stories of the last 10 years. And that there are these practice rooms setting up everywhere. It means people 
are using music, whether or not they're even recording it, they're using music as a way to establish sort of organismic connection with one another again. Absolutely. And that's, and that's a great thing. Um, and, and it's interesting because people are taking it upon themselves to do that in the conspicuous absence of lack of support for the arts in school systems and, and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, that it's, it's, it's a, it's a private backlash that's happening despite that. Right. And part of the beauty of it is the, the freedom to be amateurs. Okay. Is, it, it's really nice. It's wonderful. Cause I don't have the pressure of being good. So I could just be as good as I want. <laughs> Right. What what instrument do you play, Douglas? Mostly keyboards, but I used to play some guitar, but I play keyboards, you know, and and just R&B. I mean, I used to play with a a gospel choir. I mean, re- I mean, which is a great. Oh my gosh, that's about as fun as as life gets, you know, the nice little white Jewish kid in with a real gospel choir. Yeah. I was just immersed in an, in another world. You know, something I wanted to ask and, and not to to be too inside baseball, but so you're going on tour now with Jeff Beck. Yeah. And when you play with Jeff Beck, do you, I don't know, and this is the, I, again, I guess this is the Jewish neurotic coming out. Do you think about Mickey Waller and what he did or would have done? And if Jeff's listening to you thinking, oh, Mickey did that better? <laughs> Actually, no, I don't. I, I, I mean, whether or not someone did something better, that's besides the point. I don't. I don't think about that. And and I know that Jeff doesn't either. I mean, I can't speak for him, but what I believe is that, um, and my experience can probably back that up, is that that he, he he has me there because of me. And he wants me to inject me into the whole picture. You know, I've been doing uh, quite a bit of stuff with Herbie Hancock over the years as well. And um, I mean, talk about tech, you know, tech and retaining the human in a technological environment. I mean, he's probably uh, one. I mean, he was he was the first at so many different technologies, but he brought so much, you know, uh, jazz and funk along with him that nothing was going to hold back. Do you know what I mean? The spirit expressing itself through that technology. Absolutely. I mean, he absolutely did that. I mean, uh, just groundbreaking stuff. And, um, and, and at the same time, he used the tech. He wasn't used by the tech. But what I was going to say is uh, we play a, a piece that, that is called Actual Proof, and it's from a record that he released in the 1970s called Thrust. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's one of those iconic pieces of his that, you know, musicians love it. Right. And, and rightfully so. But the thing is, is that every once in a while you hear backlash, like, oh yeah, he doesn't play it like so-and-so did, or it's, you know, the record's better. And it's like, if you like the record better, fine. But I can tell you that the last thing that he would want to do is go out and play the record. So he himself wants it to become whatever it's going to become with the people that are there. If he wanted to repeat the record, he would be playing it verbatim like the record with static parts, but that doesn't happen. And that's not what he's about either. Um, So, you know, he like, you know, like Jeff respects identity and, and what you, that's why you are there. Right. I mean, it's hard. It's almost the, the better people know a particular album or a song almost the the more resistant they are to 
it's it's living incarnation, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's like that's like when you record something, right? And you go into a session and they bring in the demo. And no matter what you do, it, it'll never sound as good as the demo to them because they have demoitis. Even though it was this bizarre, weird-sounding little skeletal thing, once they get used to hearing that, it, it, it's hard to bend out of that. And it's an interesting phenomenon. And, and you know... It, Maybe part of that can carry over into the whole first thing, take thing where I personally like to try and I've been trained to do this, you know, to get things quickly and you, your, your skill set comes into play and so does your creative mind. And there's the freshness of the first time that you, you'll never get once you know it too many times, even the second take, by the time you get to the third take, you know it and you're playing parts. And now it's just a question of, do you want to change the part or how, how much better does the part sound and yada, yada, yada. And, and if they could just get used to that first take, they would probably embrace it the same way that they embrace the demo that they wrote with and listened to 500 times while they were writing a song. You know, you get called the greatest drummer of all time, top 10 list of drummers of all time and all. So you're, you're regarded by the industry and, and the public as good as this gets. Do you ever get self-conscious and nervous or feel like you're just not good enough or not, do you know, in other words, do you, do you ever uh, have a lack of confidence about your own abilities? Oh yeah. I mean, we're all, we're all equally human. And of course, I mean, I go through phases where sometimes I get depressed about it and, and I'll think, and just on a more direct answer to that question. Yeah. It's hard for me to comprehend that and get my head around that. I mean, there's, there's no, one best anything, but you can occupy the same mountaintop. And I think that it's not even about a mountaintop as much as it is just, you know, entering a specific part of the atmosphere and then continuing on the journey because it's all process. The whole thing is process. And, you know, some of these, that concept and other concepts are vital for me to keep in mind just because by realizing that, I, I just realized that no matter where you think you are, it, it's all it's all perspective. It's all perspective. And, and, and you know, and the other thing is, is that you can't please everybody. Someone else will turn around and say, well, I don't care how good you think he is. I like so-and-so better. It's like, okay, great. That's why there's a lot of us on the planet. So we can all <laughs> express ourselves and, and, and just please each other in different ways. And you know what I mean? It's like everybody yeah. has something to say and, and it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. All I want to do is make this music live as best as it can. And when you were talking about, you know, how freeing it is being an amateur, because you just do it because you love it and you're not comparing yourself with anyone else or any other kind of set of criteria. Now that's not to say that you'll necessarily be complacent. If you want to progress and be this or be that, or develop this or develop that you, you can do so or choose not to do so. But, but the point is, is that you're unencumbered by other things that sometimes you have to deal with as a professional that are really difficult to, to, to get over. And, and I think that trying to anchor somehow in your mind what it feels like and actually really being able to visit you just sitting down at the instrument and just playing like nobody's around, like the cliche, which is so true that that's why it's a cliche, you know, dance like nobody's watching. If people knew 
how valuable that truth that was staring them right in the face is that they just gloss over because it's some cheap meme, then they would understand how valuable of a solution that is to some of their own problems. Because if you could somehow anchor that, when you go and play in front of your peers or in front of thousands and thousands of people, you you'll be much better off and yield better results. You'll be more relaxed. You'll be more creative because you're relaxed and you're not bringing all these kinds of issues to the table. Your skill set will serve you better. You'll just be better off. And so that's how I feel about all of that stuff. I mean, I'm thinking back to when my daughter was in the the fourth grade band, fourth grade band in her elementary school. And the guy has them playing, uh, Let's go band. If you remember that, bum, 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 that thing. And they are so bad. They're trying to play it through the first verse and they're like all over the place. And somehow by the second time through, they are like a little bit more relaxed because they made it through the first verse and you could feel their band relax. And there was a click moment when you could feel them having the fun that they're doing it. And I'm sure, I mean, the recording would be awful, but well, awful. That's the wrong word to use. It would be all over the place, but the whole 500 parents watching this felt the cohesion, felt the joy of these kids finding each other in that song. That's the whole thing. You know, that's like the secret to life was exactly. there in that moment. Exactly. Beautifully put. That's the whole point. That is the point. Then what we got to figure out is how do we then apply this understanding of flow state and collaborative play and expression of joy, how do we apply it to the kind of the problem of civilization going off the rails? You know, on on the one hand, I have all of my kind of extinction rebellion, environmental action friends saying, we've got to wake up to the kind of the horror of the moment that we're in and address it. And then this other part of me that's saying, well, maybe the real way to address it is if we could, if we could fall into the joy of life, we'll stop doing all the stuff that's destroying everything. I mean, do you see there being a way for us kind of as a society or civilization, as a collective to retrieve some of this value, some of the, some of the, the, the techniques or, or wisdom that comes out of music and apply it to society in general, to our collective flow state as a civilization? Well, I, I wish I had the simple answer to that. And I think that there, there may be several answers. And I think that artists have great responsibility um, just by virtue of what they're doing because music has such uh, transformative and communicative power. For example, if you look at somebody who has Alzheimer's, right? They, 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 they don't, they, they don't remember if they had lunch and they look at you and they don't know who you are. But if you start singing their favorite song, they join along with the melody and the lyrics. Now, how powerful is that? What, how, that it penetrates that deep inside the brain. People with Parkinson's and extreme dementia actually come back for moments when they hear music that they recognize they 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 reemerge after years exactly and so you know like i was saying before you know all the zeitgeist this that and the other thing and 
you go back to the sixties and you heard people who had, who had the balls to write protest songs, you know, and, but with righteous indignation, but at the same time, even with all the stuff that was going on, you had Smokey Robinson and people, you know, happily washing their cars outside, whistling along with Smokey and all the Motown hits. And there were songs that made you feel good and gave you a collective sense of hope. And I think that if the artist is going to take a part in this, then he or she needs to try to reinstill that sense of hope in humanity so that we don't feel that it's hopeless. Because I think that there are formidable forces that we're up against that are, you know, are causing this whole divide and conquer kind of polarization in our society that, you know, we as, you know, or artists in general will continue to propagate unless they take their part to do what they do best and become responsible and go, hang on a second, I can turn this around because what I do and how I deliver it, it has power. So I'm going to be responsible with that power and I'm going to, I'm going to turn it around and reinstill hope in society so that if that hope is reinstilled, then people will have an impetus to make change individually then it will become a hive mind and it will become collective. It's almost as if if with music we can help people kind of remember and recognize what's the value of being human. You know, then it's like, oh, that's what we're fighting for. Amen. You know? Amen. Amen. <laughs> Gosh, I'm so glad you do what you do. I mean, I mean, and it was such a great excuse to pull out all of my I realize how many Frank Zappa recordings I have and start listening to this, you know, complex, wonderful, weird. I mean, could you imagine him coming emerging today? Oh, out of- <laughs> it's well, first of all, he's timeless and he was ahead of his time. Yeah. And, you know, he was a strong political voice. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's complete genius. People say, well, what was it like, you know, working with him? I'm like, well, it was kind of like Juilliard meets uh, the comedy store meets boot camp, you know, for three years, but, but thank you for having me on, on your show, Douglas. And, and uh, I too, so applaud uh, what you're doing and the message that you deliver and everything that you're saying. And so it's just, thank you for that. Well, thank you. I mean, it's great to find kindred spirits in different uh, verticals as they would call them, you know? So thank you so much. Thanks so much for being on team human. Thanks for being on team human. Our guest today was Hall of Fame drummer currently on tour with Jeff Beck, Vinnie Calayuda. Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College. Our producer is Josh Chaptelin, our community manager, Michael Bass, and our editor, Luke Robert Mason. And our sponsors are you. Thanks for being on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.